Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everyone, for being here, making RUF part of your week. This semester, we're studying Philippians. We've titled the series, Finding Joy in a World Gone Flat. And last week, I introduced the idea that uh, one of the reasons that our joy often goes flat is because reality is rough. We live in a world in which there's suffering. If you will, our joy bubbles, joy bubbles are often burst by the harshness of reality. Tonight, we're going to talk about another aspect of that, which is the uncertainty with which we live daily. And uh, some of the things that we are certain about are things we don't necessarily want to think about, and they're also pretty harsh. We're going to read our text and then pray together, and then we'll jump in. Our text is Philippians 1, 18 through 26. So, let's read together. Yes, being you read quietly. i got to work on that. You read quietly while I read out loud. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, please pray with me. Holy Father, we thank you for this, your word. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your law things about yourself, potentially hard things about ourselves. Lead us, Lord Jesus, to a firmer grasp of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Holy Spirit, clear our minds and be gracious to press the truths and reality of this text into our lives, we pray. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Try to remember the first roller coaster you ever rode. And if you can't do that, then remember one of your favorite roller coasters and the first time you ever rode that. I'm pretty sure I remember my first roller coaster. It was the Scooby-Doo coaster, King's Dominion. I probably spent at least a year or two dreaming about the Scooby-Doo and desiring greatly to be old enough and tall enough to actually get on this monstrous ride, face my fear down, and ride the thing, conquer the beast. Um, you know, pretty much every roller coaster ride the first time is the same. Once you wrote it multiple times, it changes. But the first time you experience this uh, eager expectation and excitement as you inevitably usually head up the hill, and you actually have time to think about what you're getting into and to wonder what it's going to be like. There's that moment at the top, you know, the little anxiety and the thrill of what's about to happen. And after that, frankly, it's all a mad dash. You might even remember what happened. You're flipped upside down, you're turned over, you're going on a bunch of curves, and before you know it, it's over. And life is a lot like that. Life's a lot like that. When you're young and climbing up the hill, you can't see what's ahead of you on the other side of the hill, but you actually have some time to think about it. And it's great. You can think about it, things, and wonder what it's going to be like. And then you get to the top of the hill, and we're not actually ever really sure in life what that is, but at some point we, you do stop and realize, like, the madness has begun. I don't have time to do anything. Like, this thing is moving and I'm on it and I'm just barely hanging on. And like a roller coaster, before you know, 
It's coming to an end. Uh, it's really interesting how much they're alike. Uh, like the roller coaster, there's certainly an end. And like a roller coaster, unless you're absolutely miserable while riding it, you don't really think about it until it happens. And you're like, oh, the end. There are some differences. Unlike a roller coaster, uh, you only get to ride life once. Can't get back in line and try again. And uh, unlike a roller coaster, which always ends in the same place, sometimes in life, uh, things come to a premature end. Much about our lives is uncertain. We can't see over the next hill. Life throws us all kinds of things we don't expect. Even in your short lifetime already, you've experienced things that you never thought you would. Perhaps parents' divorce, a friend's young death, someone your own age perhaps has passed away, perhaps an illness that you or someone else has, or uh, perhaps a significant failure in your own life. Things that you never saw coming. And there will be more things like this. Life is full of uncertainty. And it reminds us that we're not ultimately in control of our own lives. We like to believe that we're writing our own story. And I'm not saying we don't have something to write in our story. But we're not the only ones writing it. And it's very possible that 30 years from now, you look at your life and say, this is not what I thought I was going to be like when I was 20 years old. If we knew daily, moment by moment, how uncertain our present was, not just our future, but even our present, I think it's quite possible we would be paralyzed by fear or apathy. The question before us tonight is, how can, we wi- how can we live wisely, and if you're a Christian, faithfully and joyfully, a life that you won't regret during this one-shot opportunity, one-ride-only experience of life that you have? How do we live joyful, faithful lives in this one shot at life that we have when it's so filled with uncertainty? We're going to see tonight that Christ provides all that we need to live faithfully and joyfully in the midst of life's uncertainty. We'll be talking tonight about the confidence we can have as well as the clarity that we can have. That we can have confidence and clarity in the midst of life's uncertainty. So, uh, if you read through the text carefully, and then hear me talking about confidence and clarity, you may be wondering where I'm getting it. Because Paul, who's confident in many ways, is pretty clearly disturbed in some ways here. Uh, and actually, maybe even very emotional. He's conflicted. And the background is that Paul's future, including the very immediate future, is very much in doubt. He is in prison. His case will be heard by uh, most likely Caesar or some other powerful magistrate. And his life hangs in the balance based on someone else's decision. He's literally facing life or death. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And this text makes it clear that he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. And yet, Paul has confidence in the face of death for a couple different reasons. First, he's confident that Christ is going to save. We see this in verse 19. I know through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. And scholars are very conflicted over whether he means his temporal, physical deliverance, like, I'm going to get out of jail, or his salvation, his eternal deliverance. And I'm not sure it's not both, but it is, first of all, his eternal salvation. That's the way Paul almost always uses this word. There's other reasons in the text I think he's talking about this. 
whether I live or I die, I trust in Christ's deliverance. No matter what an earthly judge or magistrate declares, no matter what he decides, no matter what happens to me, I will be delivered by Jesus. The judge may find me guilty. My Savior Christ, who died for me and forgave me, at that great court trial, will find me free and righteous because of what Christ has done for me. And, and you see that he really deeply believes this. Not only will he be delivered, but you know the way in which I will be delivered into this is through death. If I die, well... Down in verses 22 and 23, uh, that's okay. Because if I die, I'm with Jesus, and that's far better. Now, that may sound morose to you. We'll talk about that in a bit. But Paul is convinced that if he is judged guilty by this earthly court, and he must die, that he will still be delivered and declared free from guilt by his Savior, and he will be welcomed by Christ. He will be forgiven. No condemnation. He will enter a state of what he calls far betterness, and verse 23. So he's confident that Christ will save him. He's also confident that Christ will be honored. We see this in verse 20. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And he's saying, in my body, meaning all of me. My life is one of integrity and faithfulness so that Christ will be honored. And I think what Paul is saying is here is, facing judgment and facing possible death, it's quite possible that, uh, well, I would crack. See, most of us don't think about death. Uh, it's a quote, runs like this, I hate insurance agents, life insurance agents, because they're always telling me I'm going to die, which is not true. Um, we like to think it's not going to happen to us. So we don't think about death, and if we do, it's sort of, sort of morbid curiosity, just for a moment, like, I wonder how I'll die, and then, ah, oh, that's enough of that, and move on. Paul's thinking about how he's dying in a very different way, He's thinking of the possibility of a very public trial and a public execution and someone saying, Paul, if you recant and renounce this, I'll set you free. Paul is facing the possibility that he will shame not only himself, but Christ in the way he faces judgment and trial. But Paul is confident, even if he's found guilty, he's tortured, perhaps put to death, that he will be faithful to the end and that Christ will be honored in Paul whether he lives or dies. He's very sure of himself. It reminds me of uh, Wesley and uh, the Princess Bride, if you remember. He's captured, dragged down to the pit of despair. He wakes up on the table and asks, where am I? And here's the answer. The pit of despair. (laughs) Don't even try to escape. (laughs) And um, he asks, uh, I'm here until I die? Yes, until they kill you. Then why am I being healed? Because the guy's busy bandaging his wounds. Well, the prince and the count insist on everyone being healthy before they're broken. So as to be torture, yes. I can cope with torture. No, no, you can't. There's the just the person caring for him with wide-eyed disbelief says, "You've literally never seen anything like this," and responds. You're obviously very brave, but no one withstands the machine. And uh, that's sort of what the, the kind of thing that Paul is looking at. He's looking death in the face and the possibility of torture and saying, I am confident that I will be faithful to the end, that I will not recount my faith, that I will be faithful to my Lord, uh, even if it means death. 
how can he be so brave? How can he be so confident? And it actually sounds like maybe it's a false confidence. He's full of himself. But what he actually says is it's because of Christ community support. He has the support of Christ and his community. And we see it again in verse 19. I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's easy to think Paul was some kind of spiritual superhero. He had supernatural powers. He could do all things. Paul says, I am confident of my deliverance and of my faithfulness to the end because of your prayers and the help of the Spirit that comes through them. This is not a matter of personal strength. There is no spiritual superhumans in Christianity. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself is dependent on the prayers of others. Your Christian growth, your Christian life, your perseverance to the end is always supposed to be lived in the midst of a vital community. And Paul needs that as well. Paul is asking for prayer. He asks for prayer not only here but in other places. It's interesting that Paul does this. It's interesting that Jesus does this. Not even Jesus, during his earthly time as a human, left it all to himself. At his time of greatest trial, when he went to pray before his death, he took three men with him to support him. There are no spiritual superhumans in Christianity. You are not supposed to live your Christian life in isolation. No one is. You are, you are needy. <laughs> You're not strong enough. But Christ is. And he executes and exudes and uses that power and supports you through his community. So uh, Christ provides us confidence in the face of uncertainty, even death. And he does it in the ways we've talked about. But he also provides clarity. And that's interesting as well, because what we see here is Paul's confusion. Uh, we see it in verses 22 and 23. Which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I'm literally between a rock and a hard place. He seems confused. I've got two really good options. I don't know what I should do. That's sort of, to me at least, the epitome of confusion. I don't know what I should do. And that's what Paul's saying. He's unsure, what's hap- he's unsure what will happen. He's unsure what he would like to do. He desires one thing. He desires to depart and be with Jesus. He feels it more necessary to stay with them. He is, it seems, confused. And I'll argue in a moment that this is a good confusion to have. It's actually an example of clarity. But death does this to someone. I said last week that suffering exposes our bottom line. It strips things down and shows us what's underneath. And death does this very well. Uh, Steve Jobs, uh, before his death, at a speech at Stanford, said, Death is the single best invention of life. Now, I don't agree with everything he's saying. This is, what he's, this is the point. Death is the single best invention of life. It gives urgency to our experiences and clears the way for the new. It's the ultimate change agent. And he goes on and says, The moment I found out I had pancreatic cancer, all the really important things became really important, and all the things I thought were important fell away. So, nowhere in Scripture does it say that death itself is good. But God uses hard things, including death, to make clear to us what is vital. If we could all live day by day in light of the fact that we are all going to die one day, we would all live better lives. Again, we don't think about death. Um, And I'm not suggesting you embrace a morbid lifestyle or way of thinking. I do live across from a cemetery, 
But uh, that's just because I like the house. And I don't really think about all the dead people there. Um, as confused as Paul seems, I think he's actually quite clear. And what he has is a clear call. And, and it doesn't get any clearer than this, in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. My life, so long as I'm on this earth in the flesh, is about knowing and serving Jesus. To love Him, to serve Him, to honor Him. I have a purpose. I have a mission. I have to love God. Part of that is loving others. You see that borne out later in the text. To love Jesus is to be involved in His community and to love them. And to die. It's not without purpose either. I get to be with Jesus. I get to experience in fullness what I experience now only partly. And what I experience now only partly as a Christian is good. He rejoices. He's part of something that's growing, progressing. But he will have in fullness then something far better, which is his Savior who loves him and died for him. Paul has a dilemma. But it's a good problem. It's a good choice between something that's very good and something that's far better. And ultimately, the dilemma is, how do I want to experience Jesus? In the flesh, in life, or in death? That actually, friends, is clarity. He knows exactly what he's about. He's about serving life, Jesus, and life or death. We don't really do this anymore, unless you're Scottish, perhaps. And I don't know if any of you are. Maybe a few of you. I doubt Swedes do this. Maybe. Uh, Anyway. Um, so, um, but family crests, and I think family crests are pretty cool. You know what I'm talking about? The coat of arms with the images that sort of represent what's important to your family with a motto. And sort of a fun thing to do is to look up uh, funny family crests. There's some really funny ones. Uh, one is the Bluth family uh, from Rest Development. It's really interesting. The, the motto is, I need a favor. Um, <laughs> And one of the comics I read was actually a guy in battle with the shield, the family crest, with about 200 arrows stuck in it, as he has this face of terror. And it shows a picture of the crest, and it's the middle finger extended to the world. Um, anyway, <laughs> your family crest says something about you. And if someone, like this is a job, maybe you should try and do this. Some of you don't know what you're going to do with your life. Imagine some, you hire someone. You don't know what your family crush should be. And you say, could you follow me around for like a year? And see what I'm all about. And make a family crush for me. And come up with a motto. Well, if someone did that, what would your family crush be? What would your motto be? What are you all about? Do you even know what you're all about? Or are you confused? Do you have the kind of clarity that Paul has? Even if you do know what you're all about, is it as good as this? Paul knows what he's about in life and in death. One last word about how Paul's thinking about death. It's common to think in our culture that thinking about death, morbid yes, but the way Paul's thinking about it, it's much better to go and be with Jesus. It would sort of make you unsuitable for life. You're just living somewhere else. You're useless to us. What good are you doing? The rest of us, Paul, thinking about being with Jesus all the time. This 
misplaced religious zeal, you're not doing us any good. Couldn't be further from the case. Because Paul is all about Jesus. He's all about serving the community. He's all about serving the community. Uh, His life is clearly about serving and pursuing this community of believers. Verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul loves them. Paul plans to be with them. He plans to serve them, encourage them, and watch them grow. What does Paul desire most? He desires to be with Jesus. And he's willing to give that up to serve them because it's more necessary. Do you know anyone like that? Anyone that's willing to give up what they most desire in the whole world (laughs) in order to come and serve you. You know anyone like that? That's what Paul is. But Paul's only following the example of Jesus. This is exactly who Jesus is. Who gives up what he desires most, communion with his Father, who enters the uncertainty of this world, who places himself in the face of death for us, he didn't have to, in order to serve you, love you, die for you, that he might forgive you, that he might transform you, that he might commit himself to your progress and join the faith. This is what Jesus does for you. This is a wonderfully, well, it's a wonderful means, friends, of God providing for us confidence in a hard world full of uncertainty and clarity. Jesus has done it for us. We can do it for him. We can make him our focus. He can be the grounds of our confidence and what we're all about. He can be our clarity. Let's pray together.